Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and it is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. And if you prefer listening to the text, there is a new audio version just published this year, which you can download from Amazon, iTunes, or audible.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! For those of you who have to have mutual parties and that sort of thing sometime, let me share with you a party that we attended last night. And uh, two or three members of our class were there. And it was an un a most unusual party. If you're ever lacking in original uh, ideas for a fun party, try this one. Farewell party for a missionary who's going to Switzerland. So they, they reproduced airport. And uh, only in this case, the plane, it had all the characters that the plane had on in the picture airport, except that um, this plane was hijacked. And well, that one was hijacked too, I guess, wasn't it? Didn't they have a bomb on that one? And uh, anyway, this was hijacked and had a hand grenade and so forth. And everybody who came to the party was assigned to masquerade and come as a certain type of individual. And they had the, the, the hijacker and the captain and the stewardesses, and what a group of stewardesses. And, uh, <laughs> and they had the old fuddy-duddy couple that practically took the prize. And... Um, they had the, the movie actress and the big shots and the, and the nervous people. All those characters were assigned to different people, and they all came and played their role. And I only got in on the act. Nobody could come uh, from the, uh, the other generation, except that they needed an FBI man to make the arrest, you see. So, <laughs> so since it was in the family, I got to come, and I went with shotguns, rifles, and... Uh, we were really loaded for bear. But it was a great experience. Everybody played their role and did silly things all evening. They had to play the role the entire evening and play the, the giddy part. That's one of the best parties I've been to in a long time. <clears throat> now, when you go to Egypt with me on one of our tours, I'll take you down to Pitum 33 where the writings of Joseph were found. You know, that's kind of exciting to stand there in the spot. The whole ceiling has caved in now. And the first time I went there in 62, 1962, there were great piles of very fine linen where they'd stripped them off of mummies looking for jewelry, etc. And um, they just pulled this linen off and it was in great piles and so I brought a few pieces of it home thought maybe on my next trip I'd maybe take a suitcase and bring home a, a lot of it next time I got there no linen all taken away that was a very foolish thing on my part I should have because it was just uh, there weathering away and somebody was wise enough to come along and pick it up and take it back and you could have all had a little snip of it you see 
but it's very finely woven linen which they used to embalm their dead. And I've already told you what the, how complicated the embalming was. And uh, this pit tomb was the result of a lot of the graves of the Egyptians being robbed uh, about, well, beginning about 1200 B.C., 11, 1000, 900, 800, 700, 600. And Necho II, that we have some evidence uh, of being the one with whom the scrolls were found. Necho II, you see, was the one that, whose army killed Josiah. And Josiah was, uh, we'll, we'll reach that next semester. Josiah was killed in 609 B.C., just before the Book of Mormon opens. And the scrolls were in the possession uh, on the breast, apparently, of one of the women, one of them and maybe one on another breast. We're not just sure. It, doesn't, it isn't quite clear. But in any event, um, there is one person who says that when he showed the mummies, when Prophet Joseph showed the mummies to him, he said, now this is Necho II of Bible fame, and, he was, and it was a little tiny man, very short, little tiny mummy. If that's true, that shows that these scrolls, which were actually written, you see, back around uh, between 2000 B.C. and 1700 B.C., Abraham 2000, um, Joseph 1700, and you've got those two scrolls together, very sacred to the Egyptians, uh, it means that either the mummies on which they were hidden had been moved from the other tombs during the tomb robbing period, uh, or it means that they'd been handed down from generation to generation and only recently put uh, in with one of the mummies, which it is we do not know. But we do know from the description of Antonio Lobolo that the writings of Joseph and of Abraham were found with mummies that... Um, uh, there were hundreds of them, several hundred of them, of different classes of embalming. Um, and only the very finest embalming of someone like Necho II would survive. He only found 11 sarcophagi that would hold up. Now, in Pit Tomb 33 today, they have millions of dollars worth of artifacts. And so a year ago, let's see, two years ago, when I took the tour over, we got permission to go actually into the tomb. It has a big iron door over the front of it. Uh, the, main, um, uh, the main gallery where all of these mummies were found has caved in. They, they, uh, they, put them, they dug it so fast, it's kind of sort of like, like this, they dug it in, in this uh, limestone, and here's the surface of the ground here. So they came in and made it like so. And then it, at the back of it, it goes way back deep like so. Way, way at the back. There was an entrance that went way, way on back and around over here. And that, this is all caved in now. And uh, this is a big iron door. And the debris uh, comes up to about here. So they've cleared it away so they could, they could put on the iron door and open it. And you go inside there, the most beautiful sarcophagi have been hidden in there. And the sarcophagi, sarcophagus, sarcophagi being the plural, as you know, is um, a wooden carved casket to fit the frame of the individual. And the face on it looks like the individual. It's a mask. And uh, here are these beautiful ornate sarcophagi, one right after the other, some of the finest you'll ever see, that they don't have a museum to put in. 
or, and they're afraid of the museum in Cairo being bombed during the Israeli-Arab War, and so they've even taken the best sarcophagi out of the museum, and they're leaving these here, millions and millions of dollars worth of the most beautiful statuary and so forth. And so they allowed us to go back, said we weren't to touch anything or weren't to disturb anything, which we didn't. We just took some uh, fast film pictures while we were in there to kind of remember what was there. But we didn't touch anything and came back out again. And we had to have the permission of the curator of the museum in Cairo in order to go in there. But it's kind of a thrill. I, I get the people in the shade underneath one of the, this bank as it's caved in uh, now, all caved in here. Why, it's always shady over on this side because it comes up quite high. And we usually have the people sit down there and I tell them the whole story of Antonio Lobolo. And uh, one of the greatest monuments of Egypt is just right straight up behind you here, the Temple of Hatshepsut. And that is so beautiful. She was the one woman pharaoh. She used to wear a beard. She resented the fact she was a woman. And um, then her son-in-law hated her and went and smashed wherever her face appears all through the temple while the nose is all missing. They've taken something and just smashed in the face. That was her son-in-law. He didn't like her. And... Uh, <laughs> So Hatshepsut's temple, which appeared in the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille actually went down there and, and photographed that temple with the big cliffs behind it, then took it back to Hollywood and arranged it so that the part of the temple that was real he preserved, and then he built in all the structure up above and behind it, so that the scene, you probably won't remember it now, but uh, when Seti I went to uh, the treasure city of Ramesses to see how... Uh, Moses was coming along as the director and um, uh, Moses is in there he's doing a triangulation and he's getting uh, all ready to bring one of the big obelisks into place and the men are all they've got the tight ropes and so forth and and it's just about ready now or it will break tension has to be just so if you look right down in front if you ever see it again look at all of the temple structure elaborate temple structure down below the obelisk that's for real that is the temple of Hatshepsut. A marvelous trick photography to achieve that. Then you remember they gave the signal and beat on the drum and said let go of the ropes and somebody got entangled in the ropes and you see him flying through the air and the obelisk goes in and settles in the sand and then they pull the sand out from underneath it and it settles down and down and down. Then they take the ramps away that it was pulled up on. That's the way they think they did it. We've even found some of the ramps so they're pretty sure. That's the way it was done. But anyway, it's quite a thrill to be there in that valley. Now, that's the, that's the Valley of the Queens. And um, the Nile River is like so. And you go up here, and here's the valley of the... The, the mountains are, are, are like this. And this is the Valley of the Queens. And this is the Valley of the Kings. And the Valley of the Kings is the most desolate, gosh-awful territory you ever saw in your life. It's the driest. It's, it's the Sahara at uh, its worst, or the Mojave at its worst. And you go up in there in the blinding sun and terrible bright, and, and then you go down 300 feet in these long corridors in every direction where the pharaohs spent their entire lives digging down so they could hide their body and nobody would find it. Because as long as their body's intact, their spirit can come back to the earth and have a good time, have a little visit. If their body is ever destroyed, they never can come back. So that superstition led them to the most elaborate 
uh, booby traps, uh, uh, so that if you went down there, you'd fall in, in pits uh, 30 feet deep, break your neck. Uh, or they would put up a sarcophagus that was supposed to be his tomb, and instead it would be underneath. Or it'd be 500 feet further down with no carvings or nothing fancy, so that it would mislead you and say, well, he wouldn't have, it wouldn't be there. But everyone was found. Everyone was robbed. Oh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Way, way back in the days of the Romans and, and in the periods that followed, except one. And that was of a 19-year-old pharaoh who was only pharaoh for three or four years. And he suddenly died, and we now know he was poisoned by his priest who became the next pharaoh. It's one of those political things. And um, they have tested his stomach now and found that he was poisoned. They took, uh, at this late date, they tested what was in his stomach, and, and he was poisoned. And his name was Tutankhamun whom we ordinarily refer to as King Tut. And so um, um, for about 10 years, uh, I think it's about 10 if I remember correctly, with the money from one of the English lords, a scientist went down into this valley and he searched and searched and searched. Now there are about, oh, if I remember correctly, uh, something like 60 pharaohs bur were buried there and all hidden away. and. Uh, <clears throat> The only one that hadn't been found was Tut. And they thought if they could just find one that hadn't been, you know, robbed, they'd have some idea how they originally looked. And so after all this time and digging and spading and probing, right underneath the tomb of the priest who became Pharaoh, he ran into a staircase all filled with rock. That's a good sign. And so he carefully takes this rock out to see where this staircase goes. And at the bottom of it, a door. He just can't hardly contain himself. And it looks as though it's all virgin territory, never robbed or disturbed as far as you can tell. And so there's something against the door, so he has to push pretty hard in order to get it open a little way so he could stick his head in and a lantern or a light. And there in the room in front of him, gold, 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 gold-plated chariots, gold-plated beds. You just couldn't believe it. Gold everywhere. He's made it. He's in. And so uh, uh, this is the famous discovery that gave them a chance to really see what happened. And the tomb is about like this. There was a little room down here that was full of material. And, um, and then they had a, a, just a, a wall right here. Now all this, the, the, the uh, chariots, the beds, the wagon, everything is gold plated. And they're all here but disassembled. So they won't take up so much room. But they're the things he had in this life, and you can't be happy in the next life, you don't have what you had in this life, so they're all there. But no tut, no tut, no sarcophagus, no nothing. Uh-oh, he said, there's this old, this old trick of theirs, so I gotta find it. So he's banging around on the wall, and this wall sounds a little different. So he pulled it apart, and ran right smack into a gold-plated wall. 
So he doesn't know what's beyond that gold-plated wall. So he makes a little aperture, goes through the gold-plated wall, and runs right into another gold-plated wall. They're about that far apart. And then he cut through that and went into another gold-plated wall. And actually what had been done was, first of all, they, they had the uh, sarcophagus, better make it small here so I can show you, in which King Tut was lying. It's pure gold. So heavy you can't even move it, hardly. Pure gold. Then, on top of that, they had a sarcophagus, and only the gold, only the mask is gold. That's part of it. Then they had the big stone sarcophagus that you'll see when you go there today. Beautiful red granite. And inside, a third mask, also of gold, but just this part of it. Then they built a room around the sarcophagus, and the walls are all gold-plated. Not gold-plated, but gold-leafed is the right word. Then they put another room with gold leaf, and then they put this room with gold leaf, and it's right to the wall. Now, in the writings, they apologized because he didn't live very long, and they said they didn't really have much time to um, fix his tomb up, so it's not very fancy. Not very fancy. Then they found another false wall here, and they got, went in there, and there were a thousand dolls in there, all made in the image of Tut. And that was put in there by his relatives. Uh, because they thought that if the body was destroyed, but there was still some image of you somewhere in the world, your spirit could come back. And so when Ramesses II became king, and he had about 65 children, and uh, his image would be in the earth for a long time from that, but he carved statues all over Egypt, down where the Aswan Dam was, you know, that's Ramesses that they remember they had to lift some of those monuments and move them up above that's all Ramesses everywhere you go Ramesses 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 he wanted his image to be left in the world so that's the historical setting now at the time that the gospel was restored all this territory was under what nation what nation dominated them Turkey this is all part of the Ottoman Empire you see, the Mohammedans had taken over, and then the Turks, um, actually, they are not Arab. They, uh, they had become Mohammedans and then been brought in as mercenary soldiers by the Arabs, and they took over. That often happens in ancient times. Uh, you bring in your mercenaries, do all the work, while those who are in charge kind of live it up. And the next thing you know, they take over the kingdom. And that's what had happened with the Ottoman Turks. And so out of Constantinople, or Istanbul, as they called it, um, they were ruling all of this part of the world and almost took over Europe at one time. They seriously threatened Europe. They took uh, Istanbul or Constantinople. It was called Constantinople after Constantine because Constantine transferred the Catholic Church from Rome to this place and called it after himself in the fourth century. But in 1453, when the Arabs took it over, the, excuse me, the Ottoman Turks took it over, they called, changed it to Istanbul. And um, that's the official name now. Um, 
so this territory was all under uh, the Turks, but they had a viceroy down there in charge of Egypt whose name was Muhammad Ali. And that's a very famous name when you, you go down there, his name Muhammad Ali. Uh, still a famous name, but for different reasons. But Muhammad Ali um, um, allowed a man named Belzoni to do a lot of digging uh, here in, the, in this area and in this area. But Belzoni knew that this, the, he was looking for, for the big finds here. And um, even the grave robbers had covered up, covered up some of the tombs, so Belzoni was finding some of those, and they were finding pit tombs, etc. And along comes this fellow, Antonio Lobolo, who had contracts with the museums in England and France and Germany to see if he could get them a few mummies. Everybody wanted a mummy in their house, in the museum anyway. So he gets permission <coughs> from, Belzoni, uh, from uh, the Viceroy, Muhammad Ali, uh, to do some digging. And uh, lo and behold, he somehow stumbled on that spot, the one spot he should have stumbled on, just below the, uh, the temple of, of Hatshepsut, which is uh, located uh, about right up here. I can't hardly describe it for you, except it's like that, and it's like that. On a different level down here, it's like that. And all these steps leading up to it. Now this isn't one on top of the other, it's one back of the other. I'm just not a good artist. But, but um, when you get down here in, in pit tomb 33, looking up toward it, why here's the big house that uh, uh, J.P. Morgan built because he put millions into the restoration of Hatshepsut's temple. He was a great uh, connoisseur of archeological investigation. So if you ever get to Egypt, and I'm not there with you, which would be a shame, I hate, not, I hate to miss being with you, but if I were not with you and, you, and your guide has never heard of Pit Tomb 33, because only Mormons ask to see it, it's just a hole in the ground, tell them to take you to J.P. Morgan's house. And then when you get near there, you're within uh, 100 yards of this hole, and you'll see the door going back in like I told you, and, and, um, and just open up your third thousand years and read this chapter and tells all about it. Now the fact that this is the right tomb is a result of BYU uh, inquiries. We've gone to all the pit tombs that are known to exist. None of them fit. No, none of them fit what Antonio Lobolo said except this one. So we're pretty sure pit tomb 33. And the guides are so amazed and they listen to our story each time as we tell our people. They stand there in amazement listen to this story and we show them it was right here this is the gallery where all of these hundreds of bodies were and, and uh, I've sent several of them copies of the third thousand years so they'd have their own story of it uh, but I noticed they don't tell anybody else about it yet right okay I just wanted to mention um, let's see did you finish all of nine and ten just nine. All right, let me just uh, make a couple of points now so that uh, we're sure we've got uh, all of that history. Uh, science has pretty well established that while Joseph was in Egypt, um, that is the period of the Hyksos. There's no doubt about that. That is the period. When it begins and when it ends, however, is problematical. And we figure from our calculations that they're off just a few years, not many. Uh, but maybe as much as 10 or 15 years when the Hyksos came and the Hyksos left. But it's a period of about 150 years, and of course, 
just as soon as the original Egyptians took over, they just smashed everything that pertained to the Hyksos, and of course, Joseph was a Hyksos. In their, in their eyes. About 400 miles down from Cairo, and Memphis, uh, which was the capital in Joseph's days, right here, Ramesses is probably up here. You come down here to Thebes, it's 400 miles south, and that was the capital of the upper kingdom. Now, why would they call it the upper kingdom? It's further south, why not call it the lower kingdom? Higher up on what? On the Nile. And the lower kingdom is always at the bottom of the river, and this river runs from south to north, naturally. So the lower kingdom is always this kingdom. And that's the one that the Hyksos ruled. Now, they also dominated Thebes for a while. Uh, but um, after the death of Joseph, you see, so this is after over 80 years later, uh, and just prior to the birth of Moses, who, was, um, who came about 60 years thereafter, uh, you suddenly had this pharaoh rally his people together and come up from Thebes and conquer the Hyksos and drive them out. They did not drive out Israel. And uh, that, of course, is another story. Now there's a real exciting drama behind the writings of this Joseph. Because how they got together with the writings of Abraham is, it, it must be exciting if we, we just get that story someday from the Lord. Because they were both together. And one man who talked to the prophet, this is all secondary evidence, but I, I summarized it for you here, dug up by Brother James R. Clark mostly. Somebody who went to see the prophet Joseph to see the mummies was told by Joseph that when he had finished translating all of the book of Abraham, which we don't have, and all of the book of Joseph, it would be bigger than the whole Bible of today. That's how big those two scrolls were. When Joseph Smith was translating, he cut them up into little sheets like this. And we've been trying to track down those sheets ever since. And um, we think we're not too far away. There's, there's some real good hints <clears throat> that a certain man who will pass away in the not too distant future and who hates the church has them. <laughs> and um, his son is friendly to the church. So in the Lord's due time, we may have all of that material back. In any event, uh, that's something we're wa waiting for with the greatest of interest. And, and uh, there's a, a member of the church who's a patriarch in one of the stakes who has the specific assignment of following this very closely. So we'll, we'll just have to see. But in any event, uh, we have Antonio Lobolo going in and uh, out of all of these sarcophagi, he just was, had uh, found 11 that were worth taking out. And while he was shipping them across the Mediterranean, he dies, apparently writes an elaborate letter, which we don't have, but we know that his nephew, Michael Chandler, had something to base the material on that he gave to Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith was meticulous in detailing the information that was given to him by Michael Chandler, the nephew of Antonio Lobolo. In any event, when these mummies reached the Thames in London, some friends realizing they were being shipped uh, to uh, Dublin, where Michael Chandler no longer was, diverted them and got them over to New York, we, uh, we think, ten years after they were originally discovered. They were ten years wandering around Europe trying to find Michael Chandler and finally get sent to him. And Michael Chandler, of course, when, he uh, when they reached New York, he was living in Philadelphia, when they reached New York at the port, 
apparently his uncle's letter told him uh, that it was somewhat of a treasure. I mean, in other words, my Egyptian treasure I'm sending to you. Had Michael, had Antonio Labolo opened them, did he know what was inside? No. So uh, he may have thought that they were full of treasure. In any event, you have this Antonio Labolo excitingly opening them right at the wharf, uh, which we... Uh, Michael Chandler. Pardon? Yeah, Michael Chandler, I'm sorry, opening with the wharf in hopes he'll find a treasure and nothing there. And as he strips them down, he finally comes to the two scrolls. And he just very carelessly and recklessly opens them. You see what they are. And that's the first time he heard the name of Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith's name was known sufficiently well on the eastern coast as having translated the Book of Mormon from Egyptian that this voice out of the crowd said, uh, jo only Joseph Smith can translate Egyptian. You'll have to get it to him. And he remembered the name, but for two years he had these mummies and the scrolls on exhibit, sold several of them, and then finally decided to search out this Joseph Smith. Went clear out to western, uh, the western territory. It was the frontier at that time, clear out near Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, there at Kirkland he sought out Joseph Smith, who wasn't there. He was living down at the Johnson home, which as I remember when we went down, it was probably about 30 miles away. So he made his way down to Joseph Smith and he said, I have some scrolls here and some mummies and I would like to have them translated. And he said, the learned men have translated some of these. I'd like to see what you say they mean. And Joseph said, well, I'll, I'll look at them. He didn't know whether the Lord let him translate them or not. Might be just ordinary... Um, books of the dead of which the Egyptians have so many hundreds he just didn't know but the Lord told him what those particular characters meant so he told Michael Chandler what they meant Michael Chandler says you're right on that's really great and I'll certify you really know what you're doing you even put in the verbs and the adjectives which the others didn't they only knew nouns <clears throat> actually translation of Egyptian then was in a very primitive state so he got the certificate, and you've all read it, it's in the church history now, and the prophet Joseph knew there must be something great about this record, and he asked the brethren to try and get enough money together to buy them. And so they got, this was a great sacrifice to raise those few hundred dollars, to buy the whole works, and for some reason Michael Chandler was willing to part with them, and so we got them. And you can imagine the thrill of Joseph Smith as he starts after that first scroll, starting in methodically reading it with the Urim and Thummim, and it opens up, one of them opens up, I, Abraham. Then he got into the second scroll. Abraham told everything from the creation on down. How, how much have we got of it? How much do we have? just the creation and the very beginning of Adam and Eve and the fact that this planet before the fall was only turning over every thousand years instead of every 24 hours. That's about us. That's where it ends. And all this wonderful material about the creation that uh, now helps us understand why there are two creations and why man is created in the spirit world on the sixth day but in, the, in this earth he's brought in on the seventh day all that is beginning to unfold for us we're gaining much from a study of Abraham also it's Abraham that tells us about the graduated intelligences you remember and Joseph Smith says I explained that doctrine to the brethren 
But then he didn't say what he explained. So when we go to the brethren, they say there's intelligence in all levels of matter. Plants, uh, not the, the same kind of intelligence we have, just not as advanced. So all of a sudden, the science of the heavens began to open up to us, and the book of Abraham is one of the great parts. Do we have any of the book of Joseph now? Um, I mean of that scroll. Was it translated by the prophet? Did he know what was in it? Did he or didn't he? Yes. What did it contain? History of the world down to the great judgment. It was practically everything that the brother of Jared saw as far as we're able to ascertain, but he didn't write any of it. Which doctrine are you talking about? In the rocks and... Yeah, it's uh, drop by my office and ask for the handout on the building blocks of the universe. That'll give it all to you. Uh, were you here the day I was telling you about Brother Widso, uh, uh, hoping that one day we'd re get this doctrine back in the mainstream of the church? Yeah, you ask a, a, the average Sunday school teacher or, or bishop, they won't know about it. And so, but we're, we're, it's gradually coming back. I, I was in an, an audience in Los Angeles not so long ago, and here it came right over the pulpit, quoting the original sources like it should be. So that'll give it to you in detail. Now, it's in your copy of the first 2,000 years. Quite a bit of the material is in your appendix on, in, under why was the atonement necessary. That's actually why I put it together the first time. But this other is much more voluminous on the building blocks of the universe. And once you understand the doctrine, it explains so much of the gospel that otherwise you have to write off as mystery, unknown. So a lot of these wonderful concepts now came right out of, of, of these precious documents. But I suppose the Lord allowed these to get lost temporarily for the very same reason that he has two-thirds of the plates of Mormon hidden up still in the hill Cumorah, apparently with the sword of Laban across them, which says this sword shall not be sheathed until God has come in his glory. Um, they're, they're all there together, unless they've been moved since. That's where they were the last time anybody saw them. Yes? Have you run across anything that would indicate uh, that the writings of Joseph, Joseph were not destroyed in the fire? Yes, we're, we're quite certain they were not. They were not? Were not. Neither of the scrolls went to um, Chicago only two mummies and we actually have the catalogs listing everything that they had in that fire well, and here you indicate that they were they did go no go back and check it, it oh. they, they they went to st louis but they didn't go to chicago that's the latest that we have and that's uh, that's brother james r clark's contribution like Right, the one. Right. And, and that's, it kind of puzzles us, too, because we, we now don't know what we've got. We don't know whether we have one sheet. Prophet Joseph said there were a lot of, of um, papyri with the scrolls, uh, the astronomical data, mathematical data, and we brought some of those west with the saints, which we've now lost. We don't know where they are. Now, this one that we found, or that was found, by the curator from the University of Utah who was back there at the Metropolitan Museum in New York and saw it and recognized it even though part of the figure had been destroyed meanwhile 
uh, he, he said that ought to go to the Mormon church, that, that really belongs to them. And it was he who got the museum to donate it to us, where we keep it uh, in an air humidor, so it won't be further destroyed. But the, as you know, the fantastic thing about that is that in, a, in two square inches are all the computer symbols for the whole book of Abraham that we now have. And only the part that we now have. And you've got little marks like so, and you've got the prophet Joseph in his uh, dictionary on the Egyptian language saying that stands for all of this, and it goes on for sometimes 125 words. And then there'll be all these little characters, they're all in, in two square inches, but they're kind of like computer symbols. And you couldn't possibly translate that into this. That's not alphabetical translating. That's a computer symbol of some kind that they used in ancient times to tell a whole phrase that you, that you knew. When you saw that, it meant all of this. And uh, so they were very critical of Brother Nibley. I think I mentioned that to you earlier. And uh, uh, Dialogue magazine tried to get everybody who was of any account, including his former professors, to just say that in those two square inches where you can find all the symbols that are in the dictionary, which Joseph Smith left, you get the whole book of Abraham, that that just couldn't possibly be a scientific translation. Then they threw it at Brother Nibley and gave him three weeks to answer it. And I myself was very concerned about how he would answer it. And he came back with that very creditable reply uh, that uh, he wasn't accepting any of the criticisms of Joseph Smith's work because none of them were competent. And that when any of them could demonstrate that they were an authority on the operation of the Urim and Thummim, then he'd listen to them with respect. <laughs> That's the way he answered. Meanwhile, he went on in another direction and has come up with some marvelous material which were very serious problems in connection with the book of Abraham. And particularly with that, um, that symbol that we have, you know, of a man uh, uh, on, a, on a couch, it looks like. And practically every pharaoh used it. And here uh, Joseph Smith all of a sudden comes along and says, that's Abraham, and that's uh, the angel giving him the message, and that's uh, the priest of Pharaoh, and, and this is, um, uh, he's going to be killed, etc. They said, no, every pharaoh puts this on his tomb to commemorate, to commemorate his embalming process, that's all. His spirit, the bird, represents his spirit departing, and uh, it's the embalming scene. Any balmy person knows that that's what it is. And they so ridiculed him, so what he did was to go right on in his research, and lo and behold, we've got a hero story. And all the pharaohs have borrowed it. And he's demonstrated that this was a hero story, and every pharaoh wanted to say that he was the one that almost got killed, just about sacrificed, and he was saved by God. It's a great contribution. He's a real fine scholar in his own right. Well, the very fact that we now have this uh, it's now part of the standard works of the church and there are some members of the church who are Egy Egyptologists who actually wanted us to take it out of the standard works because their, their worldly learning uh, told them that it couldn't possibly be an authentic translation. And Hugh Nibley's answer to that was, uh, obviously it's not an alphabetical translation, but down in India and Peru and so forth, they've just got knots in strings for computer symbols. And one of their priests can take hold of that string without even looking and feel through four or five knots and he'll go in for three or four hours reciting genealogy 
fathers to son and all their families. Uh, computer symbol. So we just kind of have to humbly wait for the whole answer.